0: Hello and thank you for joining our Morning Commute podcast series on multiple sclerosis. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen, Bristol Myers Squibb, and Sanofi Genzyme. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ms4. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. You can also find the complete six-part series by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS. In this episode, Close to the Mark on Secondary Progressive MS, our faculty will discuss the current evidence for disease-modifying therapies, DMTs, in patients with active secondary progressive MS. How is SPMS diagnosed and how does it differ from relapsing remitting MS? Moreover, are the treatments for SPMS effective for RRMS? I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Fred Lublin, who is a Saunders Family Professor of Neurology and Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City and by Dr. Robert Bermel, a neurologist in the Neurological Institute's Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Dr. Lovlin will begin our discussion.
1: Welcome to this podcast, Close to the Mark on Secondary Progressive MS. I'm joined by my friend and colleague from Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Rob Bermel. Welcome, Rob.
2: Oh, Thanks, Fred. It's great to talk to you today.
1: So we're going to talk a bit about secondary progressive MS, and and we need to have this conversation um, because there's been some confusion around it. There's always concern because it's the form of MS where individuals develop the most disability, along with primary progressive MS. But progressive forms of MS are the form of MS that we're looking to avoid uh, in patients. And the other, as as we'll get into, is our our therapies are. Less robust for and much more limited for treating uh, progressive MS. Uh, but first, the secondary progressive MS presents some very specific challenges, and and the first challenge of it is is diagnosing it. So the standard diagnosis of of secondary progressive MS is an individual who starts out with a relapsing MS course. And then transitions to a point where there's gradual worsening, independent of relapses, over time. And so it's a clinical diagnosis. And there may be superimposed relapses on top of that progressive course. But the major differentiation is that in between those relapses, they're gradually worsening. And and as we're going to discuss here, it has to be um, distinguished from worsening MS due to stepwise accrual of disability from relapses that don't completely recover. And since over 50% of relapses don't completely recover, that stepwise worsening is an important factor, especially early in the course of disease. But no matter how bad someone gets with stepwise worsening, that's not progressive MS. Progressive MS only occurs when there's the gradual worsening over time. And the other part of this that one has to remember is that that progressive MS is not inexorable; that it can plateau, it can fluctuate a bit, it can even stay stable for a long period of time, uh, and sometimes forever. And so that sometimes complicates people's understanding as well. And so when we when we put out the phenotype papers in 1996, and again in in the 2013 revisions, you know, we, we recognized really two different progressive forms of MS, primary progressive and secondary progressive. Primary progressive, they start out with gradual worsening without having any history of relapse activity, although they may in time have superimposed relapses, whereas secondary progressive MS can only occur in someone who starts out with a relapsing form. And and so we put those out and and we're going to talk a little bit about that and a little bit more of this. And then we'll get into how we subtype them uh, as well. But but Rob, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the the idea of MS as a continuum?
2: Sure. So I think, you know, uh, Fred, you bring up this really important idea of the, the disease phenotypes. And when we talk about these things, I think that what's happening in the back of all MS neurologists mind is that um, when you talk about the distinction between um, uh, secondary progression or disability that's accrued due to secondary progression versus disability that's accrued residual to relapses, I think that that triggers in all of our minds um, pathophysiologies. Uh, in other words, thinking about different processes that are happening um, in that patient. Because when you have a patient who's early on an MS and they've experienced a few relapses in, you know, maybe even a number of months, and they have residual disability that they didn't recover from those relapses, personally, I think of a different set of um, pathophysiology is a different set of interventions than the person who has pure superimposed progression, in the background. And so in my mind, um, really the mechanisms of course are heterogeneous. They're not completely elucidated, but I tend to think more in the early, you know, um, patient with multiple relapses and incomplete recovery of, um, in inflammation, you know, maybe more direct immune mediated injury, uh, uh, you know, related to enhancing lesions related to Breakdown of the blood brain barrier, acute inflammatory focal events. And then that person who has more superimposed progression, I tend to think of as having, you know, even more poorly described uh, pathophysiology, but, you know, to sum it up, sort of maybe more degenerative mechanisms uh, without so much active inflammation. Um, You mentioned, Fred, how this is a clinical diagnosis. And I'll tell you that there's two ways in my clinic that. Uh, secondary progressive MS often rears its head um, and becomes pretty obvious. One is in the patient where I say, you know, think back to last year at this time. So say we're, um, you know, around the holidays, maybe say, well, think back to last Thanksgiving. Um, What were there things that you were able to do then that you weren't, that you're not able to do now? And they say, well, you know, I could walk the airport, 15 gates, no problem uh, last Thanksgiving. Uh, and I could never do that now. I, I need a cane or I need to stop and rest every, every couple of gates. Um, and I'll say as a follow-up question, when did that happen to you? And they'll say, gosh, you know, I don't really, I never didn't even know that. I couldn't tell you when it happened. It creeps up on people. It happens slowly. Um, whereas the patient who has had a relapse would say, Well, that happened in March. I was in the hospital for three days, or in March I, you know, was doing fine. And then all of a sudden the next week I um, you know, I was having this new symptom, like weakness. Uh so that question tends to the, you know, think back to a year ago where the things that you're able to do then that you can't do now tends to bring it out. The other situation where I've seen it come up is where um uh I walk into a room and tell a patient, good news. Um, Your brain MRI looks completely stable. There's no new lesions. And they look at me kind of quizzically and they say, um, well, then why am I doing so much worse? Um, And uh, they've had this slow, you know, the patient's there to discuss this kind of slow worsening of things and how they've maybe reached uh, a functional threshold where now they're not able to do as much as they wanted to. And then uh, I, as the doctor who am there to, you know, talk about their test results, Um, coming off as a little bit dissonant. uh, And and that's the other time where it really becomes obvious that, hey, we might be talking about progressive MS. But like you said, it does not mean, for instance, that the patient's walking with a rollator or a walker or a cane um, necessarily. It's really that progression that happens over time. If you measure it in your clinic, so if you measure things like 25-foot walk um, or a nine-hole peg test or um, other neuroperformance measures... You may be able to identify progressive MS sooner than you could identify it just asking those questions. Um, but even then, it's tough to pick up on it in real time. It's much easier to identify it in retrospect. When you look back at the curves that you plot of those time 25 foot walks over the years, you say, oh, geez, I guess maybe this person's been progressing for the last couple of years. And we didn't notice it visit by visit. And, and that's the way it happens, it sort of creeps in. But those heterogeneous mechanisms, I think, you know, that's when I think of MS as a continuum. I think of patients being able to have both of those, you know, you can have relapses and superimposed progression, um, or you can have more of one or more of the other. And I think in my mind, at least it triggers the underlying pathophysiology. And even though we don't know, you know, we don't have worked out yet the specific immunopathology or the degenerative pathology of each of those components. I still think it's a useful framework to think about um uh relapses and progression is probably somewhat different processes in patients and, and being able to sort them out.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on the dichotomization. I, I, I worry that's an oversimplification. Um and, and the pathologists do tell us that there's inflammation along the course of MS from start to finish, including in the burned-out brains. Um, but but certainly there's degeneration going on. And and I think that. The fact that we don't do very well in treating it um, confirms that uh, there is there is this diagnostic issue of progressive MS. First off, doctors hesitate to do it uh, because it scares patients. You know, even early on, and you've had this experience, I'm sure. A patient comes in with their first attack, and the the great optic nerve, the they're great, they're great and say, "Do I have progressive MS?" because they look online somewhere and they see that this is, you know, a less favorable form of the disease. Um, And so I think doctors are are reticent to apply the label because it is clinical. Um, And and I understand that as well. And also there's people who are are reticent to apply the label because it may affect their insurance coverage for medications. But, But there is this period of uncertainty as to when someone is truly transitioned into secondary progressive MS. And and my colleague, uh, Alana Katsan, published a a seminal paper on this, just looking at it, uh, actually at Aaron Miller's patients uh, over time and looking to when the the, the phenotype was said, oh, this actually is secondary progressive MS. And it took almost three years of thinking about it before there was this certainty. Um, and so for us, I think we, we need to think about how better we can approach this, because um, one of the things we've learned during this treatment era is the earlier we treat any form of MS, the better individuals do. Um, they just early on, early, early treatment has a much better efficacy mark. Uh, And that goes for progressive disease as well, probably. And and their secondary progressive MS is a challenge because the patients have to get through a relapsing remitting phase first before we diagnose them as secondary progressive. So when you look at the clinical trials um, of secondary progressive MS, they've had the longest duration of disease of any of our therapies, whereas the relapsing remitting and even the primary progressives all have a much shorter... Uh, duration of disease when they enter the clinical trials. So this this uncertainty in diagnosis is something that we need to think about in the future in terms of finding a a marker, maybe a biomarker of progressive disease. And I don't know that it exists now. There are some MRI changes, um, paramagnetic rims, and, and slowly expanding lesions that are more common in progressive disease, but not unique to it. Um, there's some work being done on cortical lesions as well, but um, I think we're going to be able to, get, be able to diagnose this sooner.
0: Distinguishing secondary progressive MS from relapsing remitting MS, Drs. Lublin and Bermel delve further into the subject of potential biomarkers. But are they ready for primetime clinic use yet, or is there a potential for misclassification or misdiagnosis? Let's rejoin our discussion.
2: Yeah, I think if we did have a diagnostic biomarker for secondary progressive MS, that would really help. Um, I think in many patients, not so much a switch uh, or an abrupt change as it is a gradual evolution into secondary progressive MS, but if we could start to pick up some of those markers, you mentioned slowly expanding lesions or paramagnetic rims, I think those are both potentially promising but still relegated to the research realm right now. Also, hallmarks like microglial activation that's able to pick up on certain PET tracers might help us to understand the pathophysiology. Maybe um, neurofilament light as a blood biomarker may help us to understand patients who are undergoing uh, neurodegeneration even in the absence of uh, acute inflammation measured by gadolinium-enhancing lesions or new T2 lesions. Uh, So I think there are some uh, potential candidates there but still, um, you know, this is where the fun of being a neurologist comes in, right, is we do not have all the answers. It still requires clinical judgment, and it still requires judicious application of the phenotype criteria that, um, you know, that you've been the lead on for the um, entirety of their, of their evolution. And so I'm curious what you think about neurologists applying these phenotype criteria. What, what do they get right? What do they get wrong?
1: Well, I'm actually very concerned about misphenotyping. As much as I am about misclassification uh, at diagnosis, um, they have different implications. Uh, misdiagnosis actually is, is more troublesome in terms of people getting started on a therapy do need. But for us to better understand secondary progressive MS, we have to be sure we're categorizing it correctly. And so I don't think, for example, there's any EDSS that defines secondary progressive MS. Um, I think that there's no age, but age is a factor. And we're going to talk about age in terms of treatment, but age is also a factor in terms of progressive MS because it occurs in an older age group. Um, but, but I think that until we have a better way of diagnosing it, we're not going to understand how best to approach it. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about active and non-active um, uh, progressive MS towards the end of this um, because there's... There's problems there, too, but my main concern is this confusing worsening, which could happen either by progression or by stepwise accrual disability for secondary progressive MS. And because of that, and because it's a clinical diagnosis, then all of our prognostic indicators and even the biomarkers are hard to understand because we don't know what what the gold standard was for diagnosing secondary progressive MS. But we have made some inroads into, into treatment of, of progressive illness. Um, and, and I think that, that you know it's worth reviewing some of that and also how we approach the treatment. And, and you've got some, some uh, ideas and discussion about age in terms of treatment uh, with disease-modifying therapies.
0: Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS4 to claim your credits and evaluate this program. Doctors Lublin and Burmell now turn to treatment options for secondary progressive MS. Let's listen in.
2: Yeah, no, I think that when I think about treating secondary progressive MS, I think of um, two primary risks. One is... um, Uh, missing out on an opportunity to treat someone who might potentially benefit and um, the opposite risk then over treating someone or treating someone with a medication that may cause safety issues or potentially side effects when they're less likely to benefit. And so personally, what I like to try to do is um, identify some factors in a given patient that would make me um, uh, more inclined to treat them or think that they're more likely to benefit from a treatment versus somebody who they're less likely to benefit, but they're still um, accruing the same risk of side effects and of complications. Um, And so I try to identify some core values there. Age is one of those. And so if, uh, you know, I don't really have a threshold per se, but um, if someone is much younger, Uh, then uh, I tend to lean towards giving them every possible consideration of treatment. And if someone is um, older, then thinking about, well, geez, are they more on the uh, side effects and complications from therapy um, end of things? And and my experience in this is maybe a little bit um, from the era of the platform therapies where we had patients with um, secondary progressive MS where they were getting slowly worse year by year. Um, still on interferon therapy and and experiencing a lot of spasticity and maybe even things like depression as complications of their MS and potentially a therapy could Mm -hmm. even worsen those. And so I'm always mindful of patients later on in their disease course, decades and decades into MS, of making sure that the treatment um, is giving them benefit and not causing them side effects and harm. So that's at the far end of that spectrum. But on the young end of the age spectrum, really I think that um, you know patients deserve um, the, the benefit of potential treatment even if they do not have a lot of disease activity. I'll say that besides age, disease activity is the other major criterion that I use. So if a patient has had evidence of disease activity, which I would call relapses or new MRI lesions or a gadolinium enhancing lesion, if we've caught one of those, in the last few years, um, I I will certainly think that um, treatment with MS disease modifying therapy is appropriate and um, I'll actually advocate for it in those patients. Um, But I believe that there is a a big gray zone in the middle here between patients at the older end of the MS age spectrum, so say patients over age 60, 65 um, with progressive MS, and no evidence of disease activity in many, many, many years versus patients who are very young at the beginning of their journey with MS. And even if they do have progression, that is slow worsening of their disability over time in the absence of relapses, that I'll be more likely to treat them. And and a lot of those principles derive from some of the clinical trials that we've seen with therapies and progressive MS dating all the way back to the trial that Jeff Cohen ran years ago with interferon um, uh, the impact trial, which showed um, some benefit in patients' upper extremity function if they had if they were younger age in particular, or had recent evidence of disease activity, but I think have been consistent even through our more highly effective therapy trials. But um, that's the way I tend to frame it. I don't know if that's similar or different from what you what you tend to do.
1: I think there, there, there are some data and it's being looked at further that that age is an important factor in DMT therapy, even for relapsing remitting disease, that the, the therapeutic effect may be less as individuals get older. Um, we certainly know that inflammatory activity is less as individuals get older. Uh, even the natural history of untreated MS uh, shows that relapses and gad enhancing lesions go down over time. Which highlighted the fact why you had to have uh, control groups to do a study. So I think it is an important consideration and, and, and I, I, I worry about this older age group who are still progressing. this the ones you referred to the over 60 or 65, because uh, I worry a little more about the safety of the agent. On the other hand, they're progressing and and you know you don't want them to lose function. They already have all the other comorbidities of old age that are affecting their function. Um, And I don't have an answer. All I have is a worry that that they concern me. It's one of those instances, almost paradoxically, when you're looking at a progressive patient, that you'll do a scan and say, I hope I see something new. I hope I see activity on here because then I feel better about treating you and, and also the likelihood that the treatment will work. So let's talk a little bit about the, about the studies we do have for progressive disease and where we've succeeded and
2: where we've failed and what we've learned. So why don't you kick that off? Great. I've mentioned some of the earliest studies, uh, but uh, you know, even consistently through our more recent studies, um, trials of B-cell therapies and sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor modulators, as well as um, VLA-4 inhibitors, We've seen these two criteria um, emerge as if you look at patients um, as a whole, um, that is, patients with primary progressive MS or secondary progressive MS, large group of patients enrolled in a clinical trial. Um, I think that the result of this trial in terms of benefit on disability is usually um, sitting on a knife's edge, that it's you typically based on what type of patients enroll in a trial, whether, the the trial as a whole is going to be positive or negative. And to the degree that the trial enrolls patients that are more active, that is have um, more recent relapses, maybe somewhat younger age, maybe had a higher percentage of gadolinium-enhancing lesions at baseline, that it's more likely to, uh, and a given agent is more likely to show an effect in that population. Um, Or if what you do is take subgroups Uh, of patients from one of those trials, you'll find, I think, that um, patients who um, had more recent disease activity or a younger age are the ones who are more likely to benefit. The adverse events also, Fred, that give me pause. And so when you're talking about potent disease-modifying therapies such as B-cell depleting agents, um, you worry that patients who have higher level of disability, patients who are an older age, are just by their nature more at risk for um, infections, even common infections like pneumonias or um, urinary tract infections, and that the sequelae of those infections might be more severe; um, that they might be more likely to land them in the hospital, and uh, you know the specter of malignancies also um, exists, and it, you know they're more common in patients um, uh, over age sixty, and so. I think we do need to be judicious with our use in certain populations, but also um, I tend to um, agree with you. It sounds like that we do not have the pathophysiology of secondary progressive MS completely sorted far from it. And uh, if I have uh, a therapy, especially in a younger individual um, and someone with uh, you know more recent disease activity that I think might potent- have the potential to benefit them, even if it isn't going to be the cure for their disease, even if it would help somewhat to slow um, uh, the, I would say, sort of think of it as the cumulative damage um, in the form of um, acute inflammatory attacks, relapses, new lesions, brain volume loss, disability level, of course, um, that I'm likely to use that agent uh, um, in somebody if I don't um, uh, believe that I'm likely to harm them. So that's how I use you know, kind of the, uh, integrate the pooled results of the clinical trials that we've had um, into my practice, even though, as you can see, it's, um, it's a lot of expert judgment um, in these circumstances as well.
0: Doctors Loveland and Burmel discuss two fairly recent trials that are showing promise as treatment options, the oratorial treatment of ocrelizumab versus placebo for primary progressive MS, and the EXPAND trial that looked at Siponimod versus placebo for secondary progressive MS. Let's rejoin the discussion.
1: Okay, and, and your thoughts about the, the successful clinical trials that we've had? I guess we have two to mention. One would be oratorio and the other would be EXPAND. oratorio uh, yeah, so. for primary progressive, EXPAND for secondary.
2: For sure. So um, I think that these uh, criteria or these two clinical trials, Oratorio and primary progressive and expand and secondary progressive MS, certainly have led to, I think, broader use of these agents in patients um, with progressive MS. The benefit in terms of the the quantitative benefit on the disease is still not what we would like to see. Um, I wish it was a cure. Uh, I tell every patient that I see with secondary progressive MS that. Progressive MS is the the part of MS where all of the um, big minds and and the research dollars are going these days in terms of trying to figure this out. But in the meantime, until we get there, until we get to restorative therapies, regenerative therapies, remyelinating therapies, until we get to true therapies that can halt the progression of secondary progressive MS, we do use the agents that we have, even if their benefit is, um, is subtotal. and. You know, I think the elephant in the room that I'd love to ask you about, Fred, is this um, idea that the FDA, the regulators, appear to have taken on this um, nomenclature of active secondary progressive MS and applied it to many of the disease modifying therapies, even if there's not clinical trial data in that specific population. And I'm curious to know what you think about that. So I think
1: the logic. Of saying that MS activity and and for us in the field activity we've defined this we did this in 2013 with phenotype scripts that activity was either a relapse or a new or unequivocally enhan- uh enlarging T2 lesion or a gadolinium enhanced lesion so activity was new clinical or MRI uh, activity and we proposed that so that we could get a dynamic Picture of what's going on with the patient. And when we did that, we said that it had to be framed in time, right? You had to pick a time frame. Say the patient was active in the last six months. We said, at a minimum, do that assessment every year. So I think the idea of saying that activity is activity wherever you are in the spectrum of MS is reasonable. I think that that suggests that you should treat it with one of the anti inflammatory agents, uh, absent the evidence. And the evidence only exists in the Soponimo trial, right? There really aren't any other studies that clearly show an effect on secondary progressive disease uh, in patients who have activity. Um, But I'm actually okay with that distinction. And I would even propose it into primary progressive MS with activity. If they're having relapses, I would view it the same way. Where they went wrong on this is is severalfold, but the first big mistake was to label secondary progressive with activity or just active secondary progressive MS, full stop, without defining the time frame. And what we said, and we published a clarification in May of this year to our 2013 uh, paper to try and explain this that. It has no meaning without a time frame, and so all secondary progressive MS is active MS if you don't specify a time frame, because they had to go through at a minimum a relapsing remitting period to get there, and that's activity. Um, and and I think that the other thing that the U.S. regulators, the FDA, were only talking about relapses, whereas our definition of activity also included MRI. Mm. The European Medicinal Authority took into consideration relapses and MRI activity, but still forgot to or ignored the time framing. And so it's kind of good for clinicians because you can take a very broad definition of what active, secondary, progressive MS is. But for our purposes, as, as clinical researchers, we really want to have... It defined what's that activity period, and then look at therapies that have an effect on that. But also, more importantly, look at the non-active secondary progressive MSs, because that's our big unmet need. So once we get past that confusion, um, and that confusion actually makes it a little more difficult to do the studies, we need to look at the patient who's progressing, either primary or secondary. In, independent of any relapse activity, and, and even better, absent any relapse activity. That's, I think, our major unmet need. What
2: do you think? Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think that measuring these things in clinic is definitely a challenge. Um, we have a large MS center here, and I think of us as pretty well aligned as partners uh, within our practice of the way we measure things, the way we document things, um, and still, Uh, It is a real challenge to year after year, if you're taking care of a patient with MS uh, or for instance, recently having a, I had a colleague who retired uh, and picking up some of his patients, um, trying to learn from the documentation, what was, you know, what was a specific patient's history in terms of disease activity tends to get buried in the notes over time. So um, I think pulling some of that information through and being able to actually measure what the disease activity was, like you said, in the last year, in the last two years, um, uh, would be really useful. I think there's some practical ways to do it. So we, for instance, ask our neuroradiologists to give us um, structured reports of MRI scans for patients with known MS that we're monitoring. So they actually have to um, stipulate for us how many new lesions there were compared to the last scan and what the date of that last scan was how many enlarging lesions, how many gadolinium enhancing lesions. And that way we have a number to sort of put in that follows with a patient and we can chart it over time to sort of look at the disease activity. You can measure things like neuroperformance performance tests to plot um, the patient's history in terms of walking speed or manual dexterity over time. Um, but um, it becomes a challenge uh, in clinical practice to identify it each time, now wait, when was this person's last disease activity and um, would they benefit or would they not benefit from a DMT? But until we get medications that specifically attack those other mechanisms of action that underlie secondary progressive MS, I think the medications like you mentioned, saponimod um, or uh, a B-cell depleting therapy, which has some rationale for use in progressive MS based on the oratorio trial, um, I think definitely... um, Uh, have uh, a place in the therapeutic armamentarium, even though they're imperfect, and even though we're waiting for the next generation of therapies to emerge.
1: So there you have it. Our major unmet therapeutic need right now is a treatment of progressive disease. And so uh, thank you for listening to this Close to the Mark on Secondary Progressive MS. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to Dr. Rob
2: Burmell from Cleveland Clinic. Thank you, Dr. Loveland.
0: And thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS4 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. In our next podcast in this series, Dr. Patricia Coyle and Dr. John Rinker will return to discuss S1P receptor modulators. That podcast, comparing notes on S1P receptor modulators, can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS5. And you can find all of the podcasts in the six-part series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS.